0: Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to be here with you again um, in Gilnaherk this morning. Um, as you've heard, we're going to be looking at the Book of Psalms, so I want to encourage you to um, turn in your Bible to the Book of Psalms. Um, we're going to be flicking through lots of it. The the remit I was given was um, to look at uh, all of the psalms. So. Um, Settle down, um, you'll not need to go home this afternoon, you'll just be here for the praise service later, um, look forward to that. Um, so we're, we're going we're gonna to try to do that, and I'm going to try to do that um, in not too, too long a time. So let's just pause and ask for God's help in that. Father, we do praise you for scripture. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, uh, and a God who speaks to his people. Uh, And so our prayer this morning is that as we come before your word again, um, that we would hear your voice, and that we would not only hear, but that we would do, that we would act in light of all that your word tells us. We pray this morning that we would be challenged and comforted in equal measure, that we would know that we have met with you. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. So there are many things that that on their own are beautiful, but placing lots of them together creates a beauty of a different order or of a different degree. So a a single bird is intriguing to watch as it flits through the air, maybe in your back, garden, back and forward to the feeder and the nest. But thousands of them flocking together in the sky is mesmerizing. A, A single tree towering upwards is majestic. But thousands of them towering upwards and stretching as far as the eye can see, well, it's awe-inspiring. A single snowflake, delicate, intricate, and unique. But billions of them together completely alter the landscape. And so it is, I submit to you this morning, with the Book of Psalms. A a single psalm is a piece of art worthy of study in its own right, beautiful all on its own. But when we view all 150 together as a purposefully ordered collection, another degree of beauty shines forth. And our aim this morning is to try to see this other degree of beauty. And we're going to look at the book of Psalms as a whole. And as we do so, we're going to take three steps as we look at this book of Psalms. Step one, we'll look at the evidence of thinking about it as a book. Step two will be an outline of the story this book tells. And then step three will be a consideration of the relevance of this for us today. So, are you ready for it? Let's go. Step one, the evidence. So we want to assess the evidence for reading 150 individual poems as a book. Uh, And there are four pieces of evidence. This bit might be a little bit tough going, but stay with me. It's going to be worth it for the payoff at the end. Uh, I want you to think about yourself as Sherlock Holmes this morning. You're going to consider four pieces of evidence, and then you're going to make your conclusion. So exhibit A an introduction. The book of Psalms has an introduction. Look at Psalms 1 and 2 there before you. We're not going to read all of these Psalms, but look at them. These two Psalms form a two-part introduction. This is clear for a number of reasons. First of all, they're missing a title or, or what is called a superscription. Out of all of the first 41 Psalms, these are the only two missing a title. So if you look at the beginning of Psalm 3, it's connected to David. Psalm 4, Belongs to David. Psalm five belongs to David. I could go on for forty-one psalms, but I'm not going to. They set apart. Not only uh, do they not have a title, but uh, Psalm one begins with "Blessed is the man." I'm sure you know that you've seen that. Have you noticed though that Psalm two ends with "Blessed are all who take refuge in Him"? This sets them apart. Begins with the blessed man. Begins with "Blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord." They sit. Apart from the rest, they form an introduction. Exhibit A. Exhibit B, if you want to flick to the end of the book of Psalms, you can do that really quickly, you'll see that the book of Psalms has a conclusion. Psalms 146 to 150, the last five Psalms, form a unique collection that both begin and end with this phrase, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord starts Psalm 146 and Psalm 41. 146, starts 147, ends 147, so on and so on. The Hebrew word translated as praise the Lord is the the word hallelujah. There's this glorious hallelujah conclusion at the end of the book of Psalms. It has a conclusion. Exhibit C. The book of Psalms has five chapters. I wonder if you ever noticed this. It has 150 poems, yes, but it also has five sections within it. So if you turn to Psalm 41, you'll find that Psalm 41 ends with what's called the doxology, this uh, verse of praise in verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And then your Bible will probably say book 2, and then Psalm 42 starts. If you flick forward then to Psalm 72... What you'll find is that we have another doxology, and then something called Book 3 starts. Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then we have Book 3, beginning with Psalm 73. Book 3 then ends with Psalm 89. The end, it says, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Then book four begins in Psalm 90. And we see this happen again in Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. Then book five. And it even happens again before the conclusion, which I pointed out. Psalm 145 and verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. You notice all those doxologies sound very similar. And then a new book starts afterwards. In addition to that, what we find in the ancient manuscripts is that the book of Psalms never appeared together as 150 Psalms. It appears on five scrolls, each ending, where we have these doxologies. So we have five sections that's Exhibit C. You still with me? Last piece of evidence, Exhibit D. The Book of Psalms is all mixed up. Ancient collections of poetry, which is what the Book of Psalms are or is, well, well they were ordered very differently from what the, the way the Book of Psalms is ordered. So ancient collections of poetry tended to keep all the different types of poetry together. So all the hymns of praise Kept together, all the laments kept together, all the wisdom songs kept together, all the royal psalms kept together. That doesn't happen in the book of psalms we have in our Bible. All the various types of psalms are all mixed up. And this suggests that there's some kind of purpose at work here, some ordering which is different from every other ancient collection of poetry. So piecing together these four exhibits of evidence. I think we can say that what we have here is a book of Psalms. So you walk into any water stones, you pick up any book off the shelf, you flick through it, what are you going to find? Well, you find an introduction, you find several movements in the middle, you find a conclusion, and there's some purpose ordering all of that. That's what we have in the book of Psalms. Step one is complete. You still with me? There's only a couple of Sherlock Holmes here this morning. Hopefully you're still with me. Step two: the story. So if we have a book, what's the story that it tells? Uh, and those five segments that I highlighted in the evidence really help us to grasp this story. So here is the story that the book of Psalms tells us. It begins with book 1, Psalms 1 to 41. Uh, The introduction to the book of Psalms, which we've mentioned, Psalms 1 and 2, those two Psalms describe one person. Psalm 1 describes him as the person who meditates on the scriptures. Psalm 2 describes him as the king enthroned in Zion. But we need to read these two Psalms together because they point us to one person. For example, Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 to 20, it's laws for the king to obey. And what is the king commanded to do in that chapter? To read the scriptures. And what we see here is that we have a king told to read the scriptures. This is who Psalm 1 and 2 is talking about, the the righteous king. Uh, And then throughout the book 1, Uh, The psalmist connects this righteous king to King David. It's King David who consistently fights and defeats the wicked with the help of God. And it's for that reason that at the end of book one, David can declare in Psalm 41 verse 12 that the Lord has set him in his presence forevermore. And that's the promise in Psalm 2 verse 6. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. David says, yes, you have. Book one retells the rise of the king. Book two continues this story, but it expands it from the king to the kingdom. We have the rise of the kingdom. Uh, This is seen if you flick to the beginning of book two, Psalms 42 onwards. What you'll see there is that instead of David being connected to the Psalms in those wee titles, you've different people connected to the Psalms. The sons of Korah. They were the religious leaders. And so what's happening here is that the community is being led and worshipped by the religious leaders. What we see in book two is really that that the nation is operating as they should. Everything is, is idyllic to some extent. Uh, and this is reinforced with two psalms at the end of book two. First of all, Psalm 68 we're not going to read it, it's a very long psalm, but it traces the journey of the Ark of the Covenant from Sinai, back in Exodus, to Jerusalem. This ark symbolizes God's presence, first in the tabernacle in the wilderness, now in the temple in Jerusalem. This psalm is saying that God lives with his people. The second psalm that's important is Psalm 72, the very last psalm in Book 2. Here, the Davidic king morphs into Davidic kingship. The psalm takes the form of a prayer for succeeding generations of kings, praying that they might be righteous kings. And so book two witnesses this rising of the kingdom. The kingdom is operating as it should. David has risen to power, and now his kingdom is operating as it should. But tragedy strikes in book three. It poetically reflects on the exile. That moment whenever Israel's capital is destroyed by the Babylonians and they're they're taken into captivity. Book 3 opens with Psalm 73. I'm sure it's a familiar psalm to you. It's a psalm that explicitly wrestles with suffering in a world ruled by God. Why is there suffering in a world ruled by God? In book 3, we also have communal laments that find their pain in the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 74, verses 7 and 8. The psalmist laments, They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Psalm 79, verse 1. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have led Jerusalem in ruins. Book three reflects on the exile. David is almost completely absent from book three as well. The king is gone. And then, most devastatingly of all, book three ends with Psalm 89. It's a psalm which laments God's apparent abandoning of his king. Flick to Psalm 89 and look at verses 38 to 45 with me. The psalmist says to God, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've led his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword and you've not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast the throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. Then verse 49, this haunting question. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which you swore faithfulness to David? Book 3 ends with this haunting question. Lord, where is your faithfulness? And it asks that question because of exile. this shouldn't be. But thankfully, book 4 comes next. Book 4 brings with it seeds of hope. It begins to answer this provocative question with which book 3 ended. And it does so by reminding God's people that he still rules. It begins in Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses. Just as God once led his people through the wilderness with Moses, well, he's going to lead his people through another wilderness, the exile. Assurance is then given that God is able to rescue his people from disaster and exile. Psalms 93, 96, 97, 99, they all have this repeated refrain, The Lord reigns. God still rules. Interestingly, if you flick forward to Psalm 101 and 103, David appears again. Psalm 101 is particularly striking because it speaks of a just a righteous king. Like the one we read of in Psalms 1 and 2, perhaps. And then the long Psalms that end, book 4, Psalm 104, 105, 106, they all reaffirm God's faithfulness. So despite the devastation of exile, book 4 plants seeds of hope that God remains faithful. And then we have book 5, a new Davidic king. It brings the storyline to a culmination by promising a new Davidic king is coming. David is linked to a lot of Psalms in book 5. Psalms 108 to 110, 122, 124, 131, 133, 138 to 135, which close book 5. He, he, he's reappearing. There's also an atmosphere of, of rejoicing and, and jubilation Praise in book 5 that isn't as pronounced anywhere else. The Hebrew term hallelujah, praise the Lord, appears in Psalms 111, 112, 113, 115, 116, 117, 135, as well as those five Psalms in the conclusion. And this praise seems to be linked to the deliverance that will come through this new Davidic king. Psalm 110 tells us that it's going to be a mighty warrior who will be an eternal priest and will defeat all our enemies. Psalm 132 tells us that God will be faithful to this promised Davidic king. He's going to place him on the throne again. Let me read just a few verses from Psalm 132. Verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Verses 17 and 18. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. i prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. The crown that once rolled in the dust will now be set on one's head and will shine. The promised king who will reign righteously forever is coming, the book of Psalms tells us. Uh, And so what we have here in the book of Psalms is a poetic companion to the Old Testament. The the five book of Psalms traces the rise of King David and his kingdom, the fall of that kingdom, the subsequent wrestling with God after that fall, and finally praise and anticipation that God will keep all his promises. It's the storyline of the Old Testament. This is the the mesmerizing, awe-inspiring, completely altering beauty of looking at the Psalms, the 150 together. Step two is done. That's the story. And so the key question, what difference does all of this make to you and I this morning? It's all very interesting, but what is the relevance of it? Well, four brief comments as we close. First of all, the book of Psalms assures us that God directs human history. The the Psalms are unique in that while they are God's word to us today, they originated as man's words to God. But this very fact teaches us something uh, about the mindset of the people who wrote the Psalms and the reality of this world. God directs human history. If the authors of the Psalms did not believe this to be so, well, they wouldn't have cried out to him. And considering the book of Psalms as a whole helps us to better grasp this reality. In book one, it is God who David constantly turns to in his battle against the wicked. says this in Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David turns to the Lord. In Book two, the nation turns to God to rescue it from its to rescue them from their enemies. Psalm forty four. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. In book three, in in the wake of the exile, the the psalmist turns to God once again. He directs human history. That's why it's such a problem that it's happened. In, In book four, hope is ignited as the psalmist turns to God. In book five, the psalmist praises God for his great deeds for his people. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And so throughout the centuries, from the embryonic kingdom to this dismembered state in disarray, God directs human history, caring for his people, protecting and sustaining his people. No matter what the circumstances look like, God directs human history. Look at the world today, it's it's no different. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is faithful through it all. The, the, the small town of Cove in, in Cork is famous for being the Titanic's last stopping point before its fateful sailing across the Atlantic. Cove is this small harbor town uh, down in the south of, of Ireland. It's on this steep hill that slopes down towards the sea. And at the top of that hill stands St. Coleman's Cathedral. This massive, imposing building that towers over the whole town. No matter where you are in the town, you can see this cathedral. So you read the book of Psalms as a book. This is one of the images of God that emerges. He towers over human history. No matter where you are in it, you can see him. The book of Psalms assures us that God directs human history. What a comfort as we face the tumult of life. But that's not all it it does. The, The book of Psalms mirrors the full range of human experience. Psalms are famous for their emotion. It's not simply that as poetry they capture human emotion accurately, but they possess the full range of emotions. We need to read all of them to feel this. Try reading Psalm one hundred and forty-eight the, the day your spouse dies. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the highest, praise Him all His angels, praise Him in all His hosts. It doesn't work. It jars. Or, or, or try reading Psalm eighty-eight the day that your friend, who you've been praying for for years, is finally converted and then you read this. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. It jars. It doesn't work. Focusing on one single psalm does not capture the full emotion, the full experience of human life. But reading the Psalms as a book does. The book of Psalms mirrors the full range of human experience. And this helps calibrate us. It brings ballast and balance to life. When we're in the pits of despair, the Psalms not only give us language to articulate how that feels, but offers hope that there are better days to come. When we're soaring in joy, the book of Psalms not only offers us songs of praise to sing, but cautions us that this world will not always be like this. It reminds us that life is to be viewed on the long term. No single day and its feelings and events determines our experience for all of life and eternity. Read all of the Psalms and you'll know that nothing you face is unique and nothing you face will last forever. The book of Psalms ebbs and flows, just like human experience. Third, the book of Psalms trains us to look for a new Davidic king. As we outlined the book of Psalms, the storyline of the book of Psalms earlier, I hope it became clear that one of the driving forces in the shape of this story is this hope for a new Davidic king. This hope for one that scripture tells us is Jesus Christ. But the Psalms provocatively asks this question, where is your gaze focused? Money? Money? Self, family, work, fame, comfort. Reading the book of Psalms in its entirety trains us to to lift our eyes a little higher, to look for the new Davidic king. Our, Our New Testaments make it clear that this new Davidic king is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself and the book of Hebrews, for example, apply Psalm 110 to Jesus. This new Davidic king is David, or is Jesus who is from the Davidic line. And so if you want to see that Jesus is of utmost importance, read through all 150 Psalms as a story, because they train you to look for the new Davidic king above all else. Like biblical WD40, the book of Psalms loosens our attachment to this world and focuses us to look things that are greater. Those who are, are not yet Christians are often encouraged to read one of the Gospels first, and that's good advice. You should do that. But I want to add that you should read the book of Psalms. From beginning to end, because it trains you to look for this new Davidic king. This king who has come and has won victory for us over our sin and death. And yet our looking and our seeking is not done. Uh, And so the fourth and final thing on relevance for us is that the book of Psalms trains us for the world that is yet to come. When Jesus returns, he will bring this world to an end. He will establish the new heavens and the new earth. And the book of Psalms in its entirety trains us for that world yet to come. There's a general movement across the five books of the Psalms from proportionately more lament at the beginning to proportionately more praise at the end. This movement prepares us for the world that is yet to come. A world in which there will be no pain, no sickness, no sorrow, no sin. Book 5, in particular, acts as a travel guide, acclimatizing us to this world yet to come. This world in which there is nothing to cause lament and everything to provoke praise. Just as we might pick up our travel guides to Dublin or Paris or London or New York before going to those cities, so we should be picking up the book of Psalms before we go to that world that is yet to come. It trains us for it. The book of Psalms in its entirety poetically retells the story of Israel in a way that assures us that that God directs human history, in a way that mirrors the full range of human experience, in a way that trains us to look for this new Davidic king, Jesus Christ, in a way that trains us for the world to come. Like a snowflake, each individual psalm is a masterpiece, worthy of concentrated study all on its own. But place that individual psalm with the other 149, just like adding that single snowflake to billions of others, well, it reveals a new landscape, a world with a beauty of a different order. And I trust and pray that that will help us to read the psalms differently, to see more there, and to be encouraged with God's work in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that it is you who is in control of human history. That no matter what we see on our social media feeds, what we watch on the news, what we experience in our own lives personally, that you rule and reign over all. We praise you for that this morning. We thank you for the book of Psalms, which gives voice to all of our experiences. And we ask that as we read it afresh, that we would be trained to Search for Jesus Christ in everything and be prepared and ready for the world that is yet to come. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.